yourself. Oh, yeah, Alex. Take your drink. Okay, you okay? Are you I'm okay. Okay. Is to give you a good, healthy dose of truth each time you show up here. And that be your reaction when false teaching is out there and you have to be forced to swallow some of it. But anyway, I want it to be difficult for you. I think she's cute as she can be. I know most of you probably have already seen that, but uh, it's definitely a, a reaction I think we need to have when it comes to false teaching in our world today. If you have a Bible, turn to uh, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. We're continuing the series, Smoke and Mirrors. And, of course, the sermon series is where we expose an agenda of those things that are false for those things that are true in the agenda of God's truth. So look at the introduction there. This is a review from last week. The best way not to be taken in by that which is false is to know, and that know needs to go from facts to experience, that which is true. That it's not just something that you know about in your head. It's something that you know that you can rely on. That God has proven himself time and time again in your life, and you've proven yourself to him in, tr in a trustworthy manner to lean on him, that it moves from fact to experience. In Colossians chapter 2, look back at verse 6. He says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. That phrase, in him, in him, speaking of in Christ, is referred to 168 times in the Pauline epistles, the ones in which the Apostle Paul wrote. Now, what does that mean? It's important that we understand what that means. It's mentioned 168 times in Scripture. So what does it mean? Well, there's three components to it. In him implies there's been a radical transformation, that now I am in him. He is my identity. He is who I am. He's the goal. He, everything about him is something that I hold in high esteem and value in such a way that it radically transforms my life. But that phrase also means that I'm in fellowship with him. And the concept there is really what Jesus was talking about in the Gospel of John when he talks about abiding in him. And then thirdly, it's also the idea that in this relationship that there is a deep satisfaction, that in him there is enough uh, compared to what the world offers. It's all found in him. So three things, radical transformation, the fact that we're in fellowship with him, abiding in him, and in that it brings a deep satisfaction. But then he says in verse 7, he goes on, he says, how can we affirm this? How can this be a reality in our life? He says, rooted and built up again in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Now that is the key to moving towards truth in such a way that we're in him, we are established in it, we're rooted in it, and all these things are a reality in us because we're built up in that. However, look on your outline again, the false teachers in the first century taught about a four-headed monster that consisted of intellectualism, ritualism, mysticism, and legalism. All of those things were taking away from what we, who we are in Christ, that he's not enough, that we need something else. Today, what I want us to focus on is the whole idea of intellectualism. Intellectualism, that is a, a series of thought for many, especially as it relates in the world, of those who are basically rationalizing themselves 
beyond what Christ is and what he gives us. So how does it reveal itself? Well, in the church, intellectualism reveals itself as liberalism. It's literally the idea of adding or taking away from the word of God. It's when we begin to, to take God's word and we begin to move it in such a way that it fits our agenda and not the agenda he has for us. And it's very much so by taking away from God's word or adding to it. And again, why is that important? What's Paul trying to tell us here? Because in the first century, as I said before, their thought was Jesus is not enough. Not only that, Jesus is not who he says he was. He's not who is portrayed in Scripture. Now, how does it reveal itself outside the church? Well, intellectualism reveals itself through many cults, through empty philosophies, through what many would call secular reasoning, with the attempt to put man at the center of his existence. Now, that's the goal. That's where it takes many times. That's the path it takes. Now, the word philosophy in and of itself is not a bad word in and of itself. It literally means lover of wisdom. Paul was considered a great philosopher. And he would be considered, if you really think about the way he writes, as an intellectual. He was someone who was not only philosophical, but he was also what many would consider an intellectual. Now, there's been many Christian intellectuals down through the ages. If you've studied any theology, you've come across some of these names, and they would be considered intellectual philosophers. St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, C.S. Lewis. All these are what many would say are intellectual philosophers, but they root themselves in the Word itself. So, what does that mean for us? It means that when you come to Christ, when you begin to allow God's word to be the truth to exist in your life, that you don't have to check your brain uh, out. Because it's vital that we come to a comprehensive understanding intellectually who he is. And it's so important that we do that. So what is Paul trying to do here? In the book of Colossians, he presents a sharp contrast on one side, Paul shows us the futility of a Jesus-less philosophy. And yet, on the other side, he's talking about the vitality of a Jesus philosophy. So the first thing I want us to see this morning is the futility of a Jesus-less philosophy, which brings us to the idea of worldly philosophies. Now, again, philosophy is not bad in and of itself. It's literally the science, a field of study, a science that investigates reality and human existence. Philosophy is used more generally to mean a set of beliefs or an outlook that is held by individual or society. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road. A person's worldview is supported by the philosophies they believe and hold to, which in turn determines their actions. It, in term, it determines the path that they set forth as they live their lives. The 19th century German philosopher uh, Friedrich uh, Nietzsche said this, Christianity is for the weak and proclaimed that God was dead. Many would follow this worldview. It's interesting, however, to note that Nietzsche spent the last 11 years of his life in an institution of insanity. Isn't that interesting? The last years of his life, he went insane. 
Now, Hitler had a worldview, if you think about it, that led to the death of millions. Bin Laden had a worldview that was more recent that we've seen where thousands died. So as you can see, when it comes to philosophies, it can bring life or it can bring death. And for many times in our world, many of the worldly philosophies, while it may not be a physical death that it brings about, it definitely can bring a spiritual death to those who buy into the philosophies of this world. So the theme of the book of Colossians is to dispel the worldly philosophies that Jesus is not enough and that we are not complete in him. So Paul gives this warning. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. He's basically saying, be careful where your philosophy lies. Be careful where your worldview is shaped. And so look here on your outline. A Jesus-less philosophy, Jesus-less philosophy is a philosophy that attempts to explain the great problems and mysteries of life apart from the Word of God and the work of Jesus through the cross. It's something that chooses something outside the truths of God's Word. Now, there are questions that philosophers throughout the ages have attempted to answer. Paul is addressing these philosophies, and he is able to debate these issues when you look at it very intellectually. Look at what he says again in verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. The, the word there, empty, it can also mean vain, means devoid of reality. That means there, there may be a, a part of it that you can get your mind around, but when you see it through it completely, it's void of reality. It lacks something. And, and basically, all intellectual systems outside of Jesus Christ, listen, pretend to be something more than they really are. And Paul is attempting to show that to us this morning. So, so they look good on the service, but they pretend to be reality, but they come way short. It's almost like a, a movie set in Hollywood. L look at this picture here, and you'll see what I'm talking about. You see that the, you have the buildings themselves, but then you have these structures here that look like buildings, but, and, and it looks good from the outside, but there's no substance. There's nothing on the inside. That's really a picture of what Paul and how Paul is using these words here. You see, many of the intellectual systems put on a good front, yet they come up short, meeting the needs of the human heart and answering the questions that we truly have in our minds and in our hearts. In Colossians chapter 2, again, look at verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. The word cheat could be translated literally meaning plunder you or take you captive or take you away from something that is intended. Now think about that. You, you think about in the world of sports, all the Dallas Cowboy fans, every time they lose, they, they think that someone's cheated against them. <laughs> what are you laughing about? I, it's true. I talk to these people. <laughs> but someone's cheated them out of a win. Like, They'll probably lose tomorrow night. But anyway, it's probably going to happen. But you listen closely. You'll hear someone else was at fault. But anyway, but literally it means to take away from something that is intended. 
That is what worldly philosophies do. They take you captive. They put you in bondage. They enslave the mind. They attempt to make you believe that error is truth and truth is error. In many university settings, that is the case. It's not just doctrine. It's not just a form of truth that you're trying to put forth. There's it's many times a truth that comes with an agenda. And that's what Paul is warning us against. Now, let me just say this. Not all college professors try to pull that off. Thank God for Christian professors, okay? I don't want to leave. There may be some of you here today. Thank God for you who hold a biblical worldview. We need that. But so many times when it comes to truth, especially with worldly philosophies, it's not just something that's standing out there on its own. There always seems to be a, an agenda behind it all. How many of you have noticed that? There's an agenda. There's something that's running underneath the current of that truth that they hold up. Now, there are some who go so far as to say that if you believe the Bible, then you're ignorant and you need to open your mind. My question is this, open my mind to what? What are you asking? What are you asking for me to believe? They want you to come alongside of what is believed over here. No matter if it's false or not, they want to bring you there to bring that agenda that they're desiring to bring you through. And y'all, we're seeing that more now than ever in our society. And it's happening. So look at what he says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 again. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. How? According to the traditions of men. That means it's literally something that's been handed down. More importantly, the terminology here means there was something over here that was held to be truth. It didn't stop there. They began building on that tradition. So if a lie has taken root, right? If a lie or an error has taken root, something false, and you build upon it, guess what? You're bringing what appears to be more credibility to what is false. And boy, are we living in that world today. And that's what he's saying here. The traditions of men handed down. Faults of reasoning that has been handed down. Now, in the first century, you go back to the first century, you're going to see it was alive and well in the first century, too. And there were two chief religious groups that were pushing the agenda of liberalism, or uh, when you really think about whether the adding to or taking away. There were the Pharisees in Jesus' day who were the legalists. They were the legalists. They were the ones that were basically out there saying Jesus was not enough. You have this, you have this, but you got to go back and you got to get this and this. And, and, and they were pushing that agenda. There were the Sadducees. They would be considered more the liberal theologians of the day. And they were the ones who didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in all the things that really Jesus was all about. And we see it not only alive in the first century, but even today in the 21st century. I've done a little study in philosophy, and probably many of you have if you've been to college, but do you realize that most philosophy has been built upon four people in the, that lived, lived in the past? Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and Darwin. Do you realize most of what we hold, the philosophies of the world, finds its roots in those men as they put these things forward? People tend to build. And here's what we got to understand. There can be assumptions, there can be thoughts, there can be theories, there can be hypotheses that are out there. But it's amazing how we'll take those very things that, that, that kind of 
edge on the, on the air, and we build upon those things. And that's what we tend to find. The theory of evolution. Evolution, listen, is still not really an established fact. Many higher education places would like for you to think it is, but it's really not. It's been built upon in most all educational disciplines. Many scientists, however, agree that evolution is, not, is possibly not a credible theory anymore. And when, what they're saying is where a species comes from a different species. There's many who are walking away from it because here's where they're finding the problem. The problem is really in the field of simple biology. And even genetics, when you begin to break down, and as we learn more about DNA and genetics and all these things, and you bring those to the table, guess what? Evolution can, has a hard time standing beside those new things that we've discovered recently. And again, what, what, where did evolution come from? It came away uh, hundreds of years ago, and all of a sudden there's been platforms in which all disciplines that you have in higher education, if you look close enough, have been built upon it. It's pretty amazing when you think about how lies can continue and falsehoods. Evolution has become, however, more than a science. It's become a philosophy of life. It's a philosophy, listen, about human existence. Evolution is an attempt to explain human existence apart from God creating the world. And here's why. Because if God created us and he made us, then it, it, it's likely the assumption is we're going to be accountable to him. And this is an attempt to not go there. Paul says, beware of the traditions of men. Why? Because behind what many call truth is an agenda. An agenda. Colossians chapter 8, look at verse 8 again. Beware lest anyone cheat you through empty, I'm sorry, through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. That phrase, basic principles, means things that are in a row or order. It appears that Paul is talking about what many call secular reasoning, which is basically, it says that man is the center of his existence. And everything that is of truth is born out of that reality and that existence that stands alone. And so it's very interesting that many would agree that at the center of secular reasoning is demonic activity. Now, I want you to think about why many think that. You go back to the enemy's approach in the Garden of Eden. And, and, and what it was is to make man think that he or she was a center of their own existence. That it was left up to them. If it was going to happen, it would be left up to them. If there was any truth that came from anywhere, it would come between. It would be because there's a higher knowledge of knowing that, resist, that rests in him or her. The purpose, listen, of a Jesusless philosophy is to put man at the center of their reality, to put them at the center. So, what does a Jesusless philosophy say about the three great questions of life the first question is where did I come from the answer when it comes to worldly philosophies there's still a lot of question marks a lot of question marks it used to be not that long ago we were certain it came from evolution it came from that theory 
And, and now everyone's, even scientists are walking away from that. So we're still left with questions. But here's really what it comes down to. is a question of human dignity. Of human dignity. Is there any dignity in my existence? That's really where the question comes down to. One viewpoint of secular philosophy says we come from a pool of green scum. It all started right there. How many of you that just gives you hope and purpose this morning? <laughs> it destroys human dignity. It leads to the rationale for abortion and the devaluing of life itself when we begin to take the plan of our existence away from God. Another question, why am I here? Well, the answer, there's still a lot of questions when it comes from the world. But it's a question of human duty. Is there a purpose for my existence? Is there a purpose? If you do not know where you came from, then there's no purpose for your existence. Another viewpoint of what you would say secular philosophy is, life is merely an empty bubble floating on the sea of nothingness. Again, how inspiring, right? It is saying that there is no purpose for your existence. And by the way, that's what leads to the hopelessness that we're seeing in our society today. Because we've moved away from God being central to our lives, God being central to our society in such a way that people have no purpose. Their hopelessness is surrounding us. And that's the reason you're seeing so much along the lines of suicide and all the things that you're seeing today. A third question of existence is, where am I going? Boy, there's big questions about that in secular philosophy. A question of human destiny. Is there hope beyond my current existence? Secular philosophy possibly could say, there is something beyond this, but you come back as something else. You come back as something else. Or you just cease to exist. You just die. Again, any hope there? Anybody hanging out for anything on there? I mean, think about it. It leads to the view, eat, drink, and be merry. It leads to the view, this is all there is. And if this is all there is, then live like you want to, no matter what. It leads to this theory or this idea of hedonism. There's no judge at the end to answer to. There's nothing at the end. You see, when you take Jesus out of life, there is no purpose. There is no true meaning. Someone has said that pagan philosophy or worldly philosophy is this. The attempt of a blind man in a dark room at midnight looking for a black cat that's not really there. <laughs> so true. And then we come to Romans 1. You know, it's very interesting. Paul seems to have a great gap, uh, uh, grasp of philosophy, intellectualism. and I mean, you can't read his writing and say, man, this man is deep. And, and some people would say, oh, it all rests in Paul. No, I believe the Holy Spirit of God was upon him too. <laughs> I think that's the difference in many other writers that we have across the scene. But listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 about these Vain philosophies are these empty philosophies. Let, let me give you some, some, pull some things out. He says, they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. It says, professing to be wise, they became fools. It says, those who exchanged the truth of God for a lie. 
It's talking about those, for, for this reason, God gave them over to vile passions. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. It's amazing where it all leads. And it's basically God is central. We can try to push him out if we want to, but God is central. And when we attempt to push him away, this is what you come up with. This is what happens not only in the heart of an individual, but in the heart of a society itself. It all comes down to what you believe about God's word. And when you look at it through the lens of what we're talking about this morning, really when it comes down to it, what do you believe about God's word? Here's, Here's what I know about it, that Jesus is truth. He said he was. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. You go on and it says Satan is the father of lies. So we have one promoting truth where God is central. And you've you've got the lies of the enemy over here that's promoting that man is central to his own existence. Next, we go from the futility of of a Jesusless philosophy to a vitality of Jesus' philosophy. Jesus' philosophy. Look at verse 9. For in him, that's Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, I don't know about you, but there are some things that we find in Scripture that that is presented as truth that's hard to get your mind around. How many of you agree with that? This is hard to get your mind around. And yet Paul is talking about it in such a way, he just kind of puts it out there. But really, what does all that mean? It means that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it was God in the manger. Is that hard to get your mind around? It means when Jesus confounded the teachers at the age of 12, it was God confounding the teachers. When Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was God choosing the cross. When Jesus was crucified, it was God on that cross. Jesus, Paul is saying, is the bodily form of the Godhead. That's what he's saying. So Jesus had, listen, this is what we know from Scripture. He had a, a heavenly father and an earthly mother. On his mother's side, we, we've studied this before, he got hungry. On his, on his father's side, he said, I'm the bread of life. Boy, what a contrast. What an amazing thought there. On his mother's side, he got thirsty, but on his father's side, he says, I'm the water of life. On his mother's side, he owned nothing, but on his father's side, he said, I have the keys of heaven. He has authority over heaven. On his mother's side, he died on the cross, but On his father's side, he said, I am the resurrection. That's some powerful stuff when you think about it. Jesus was fully man and fully God. But this good news does not end here. Look at verse 10. And you, how does it relate here? Okay, he just told us who who Jesus is. We're to be in him. And, And then in him, you are complete in him, who is head of all principality and power. The the power of the universe, the authority of the universe is over all that. And and in him is the only place we'll find ourselves complete. That we can see ourselves without void. That we can see ourselves in the promise of the hope that he has for us in purpose and meaning. And so the word complete also is used to describe a ship that had everything it needed for a voyage. We have Everything in him. 
And that's what Paul's talking about here. So look at your outline. Jesus' philosophy is a philosophy that answers the great problems and mysteries of life through the Word of God and the work of Jesus through the cross. So the first question we have here is, where did I come from? Can I give you the answer? Jesus. Jesus. How many of you have ever been to Sunday, in, in Sunday school? Maybe when you were a child or maybe you've helped us by teaching children over there. And you ask a question and they know they're at church. They know they're here. What's their number one answer when you ask a question? What would they say? Jesus. You know, they're more right than wrong. You do know that, right? And it's so true, even in what we're talking about here today. Jesus, and here's what that means. You're not an afterthought. You didn't come from a pool of green scum. The Bible says you're wonderfully and fearfully made. Look at Colossians 1.16. It says, for by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on the earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him, and this is wild, and for him. Think about that. We were created for him. For him to give us purpose. For him to give us hope. And then it says, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Wow. Second question. Why am I here? Can I give you the answer again? It's like a three-year-old Jesus. Jesus said this. I've come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. You see, he came to show us the true meaning of life. He came to show us the true meaning of what it means to be complete in, God, in the Godhead. And the whole idea that God is central to everything that we are. And everything begins and ends with him. And guess what? You could put all kinds of things here. Why am I here? I'm here to glorify him. I'm here to make him known. I'm here. And guess what? Every time you come back to a biblical idea about it, it's all about Jesus. It's all about him. And then the third question, where am I going? The answer, once again, Jesus. Jesus was telling his disciples in John chapter 14, he just told them some tough news. They, they heard that, that basically he's going to be leaving the scene. They've heard all that. And, and Jesus is trying to comfort them. And here's what he says here on the screen. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again, receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You're talking about hope. That it goes beyond this life, beyond this breath, beyond this heartbeat. It's amazing when you begin to put it together. And here's what's even more amazing. Heaven is not only our future destination, it is our eternal home. Think about that. This world cannot bring anything that stands with that. There's no philosophy that can stand up beside that. So here's the application. Which philosophy or worldview do you believe? A Jesusless philosophy or a Jesus philosophy? Which philosophy or worldview do you live? A Jesusless or a Jesus philosophy? You see, I'm convinced there's a lot of you here in this room. You, you, you kind of know what you believe, but 
Do you live what you believe? Is it central? Are you still finding ways to identify more with the worldly philosophies of this day? Where you are the central part of your existence, where you're truly the one calling the shots? Or is it a Jesus philosophy when God is basically saying, I have so much more for you. I don't want, I don't want you to settle for anything less. I don't want you to cheat yourself out of what I have for you. There's purpose. There's a plan. There's all these things that I have for you that will not only reside during this lifetime, but in eternity itself. Think about that. It's powerful when you think about that. And then here, a Jesus philosophy. Now, this is here on the screen. I want to show you what it entails. A Jesus philosophy encompasses the following. God is all-powerful and all-knowing and desires to have a relationship with you. Isn't that blow your mind? That he desires to have a, a relationship? Secondly, God created the world and will be its judge. Thirdly, God created us in his own image. Again, I'm talking truth here. I'm trying to bring God's word to the surface, that, that when we know his truth, when there is a false philosophy or worldly philosophy that runs against this, we can recognize it for what it is. We can walk away still in victory and not under the deceptiveness of that philosophy, which I'm so sad to say many Christians, many denominations, many churches have fallen for the worldly philosophy and not uphold a biblical philosophy. And number four, we fell into sin and are totally depraved. I don't know about you, but that, out of all these, that's the easiest one for me to believe. I know that. Number five, God began to reach out to us by revealing himself and what he expects through individuals in his word. Number six, God became a man through Jesus, the eternal son of God. Number seven, God provided his son Jesus for our sinful and depraved condition and the penalty of our sin through his death, burial, and resurrection. Number eight, God built his kingdom for those who receive salvation from his redemptive plan. Next, God through his son Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to help us grow in our faith. And then number 10, God will send his son Jesus back to this world to receive us, the church, those who are true followers of Jesus. When you say, give me the Jesus philosophy, this is it in a nutshell. And there's many verses that back up every bit of what I'm sure I've just showed you. Over and over again, this is the theme of, the, of who Jesus is. So my question to you, is Jesus enough? He's enough. Can we be complete in him? Absolutely. We can be complete in him. Lacking nothing on our journey as we make our way through this life. So I want to ask you, if you will, to bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning as we pray. Father, we just come to you right now realizing that we're nothing without you. Father, I know there's been times in my own personal life where I've tried to make myself central to my existence central to my reality and it never works it still leaves a great void in my heart father i pray for the one that may be here today that maybe they've never began that journey with you through your son jesus christ 
They've never come to terms with salvation. They've never repented of their sins and turned their life from their sin to you. Father, I pray before they leave here today that they would talk to a pastor about that decision, the greatest decision they'd ever make in their life. Secondly, I pray for those that are here this morning and they would say, I'm a believer in Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. Yet maybe they're falling for the world's philosophies. They're being cheated out of what God desires to be so much more for them. A life that is, that is carefree from the void or, or from the void, Father, but a completeness that can only be found in Jesus. I thank you for, for Solomon as he writes the book of Ecclesiastes. And he pretty much, so the whole theme of that book says, you know something, I've tried everything this world has to offer. And I'm still empty. The only resolution to his heart about that emptiness was who you are, God. Who you are. Father, I pray that we would all come to that realization. Father, I pray for the college students that are in this room and the high school students that are in this room. Those who, who are equipping themselves through education, Father. Lord, I just pray a hedge of protection around their minds and their hearts, Father, when it comes to these empty philosophies, Lord. Lord, it may be that they have to be taught those things, but Father, help them to know your word in a real way, not just something that they know, but they've experienced it for themselves to know the tr what is true and what is error. That they won't fall for the emptiness and the, the captivity that the worldly philosophies will bring into their life. That they will choose that Jesus philosophy. Father, we thank you for them and just pray for them. But Father, most of all, Help us to realize that in the meantime, that purpose that you've given us is to worship you, to find our completeness in you, and to tell the world about it. Father, I just pray that we will be about your business. Lord, we thank you for what you've shown us here this morning. In Jesus' name.